I'm Nicole Chaland, and I recently completed a report called uh, COVID-19, the beginning of the end of homelessness. And I'm happy to be here today to talk about the findings and recommendations. From the traditional territories of the Lekwungen and Wasanich peoples on southern Vancouver Island, I'm Dean Murdoch, and this is Amazing Places. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today, Nicole. It's great to get the chance to, to talk to you. What was the impetus behind this report? What got you involved in this to begin with? Yeah, well, this, the city uh, commissioned this report, the city of Victoria commissioned this report. Uh, it was back in, um, they started thinking about it in December and January, and we, we got to work in February. And in December and January, the provincial government had not yet made an announcement uh, that they would be with the federal government developing six new supportive housing sites and uh, 280 units of housing to help people exit homelessness. And so uh, the impetus is really to take a look at how can we uh, shift from um, a reactive approach to homelessness or a reactive approach to the visibility of homelessness to one that's like, okay, let's methodically go about reducing the numbers of people who are experiencing homelessness in greater Victoria. And so why, why did you decide to take this on? Why were you um, the author of this process and the, and the final report? You know, I, um, I have been uh, doing work around housing affordability for on and off, you know, for 10 or 15 years. And I have been observing uh, the increase in homelessness. And particularly, you know, about three years ago, there was a real uptick in homelessness. People that were, um, you know, working for agencies uh, that were trying to support women leaving uh, situations of domestic violence. And they were re reporting that they, there was nowhere for people to go and that and agencies had no resources to support people. And they were starting to advise women uh, to go camp in uh, Goldstream Park. And wow. um, yeah, and the shelters had a big uptick in the number of tents that are outside their shelters. So uh, very, very very concerned about what I've been observing with the housing crisis. So I was uh, pretty happy to get the opportunity to do this report. What was your process? How did you gather your findings for this report? The, uh, there were several different methods, approach, approaches. I collaborated with seven people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, and uh, that, and that was even that was a different process. It wasn't just straight interviews. There were engagements with people. So uh, I offered to help people with their applications for housing or whatever it was that their priorities were. So met them where they were at, accompanied them in their sort of daily routine, and um, observed their interactions with the system. 
and you know with their consent documented those interactions as well as their reflections on those interactions so that resulted in seven individual uh, stories in the report that um, that show uh, some of the systemic barriers uh, that maintain people's homelessness and prevent them from getting permanent housing uh, I also interviewed 30 people that work in the sector. I, six were frontline workers and 24 uh, were senior managers. And after I went through and analyzed all of that data uh, and identified the kind of main, I, the question was, what are the barriers to ending homelessness in the capital region? So after going through all that information, and uh, I, looked, I looked at various reports and relevant research. So a lot of the local reports that have been written over the years, as well as academic research to kind of add depth uh, to my understanding of the issue. How important was it to the final report to have that narrative? You said you selected seven stories that were demonstrative of the barriers uh, that people encounter. How significant was that narrative in terms of how the report was presented and received? Yeah, I mean, it was really significant and the recommendations are grounded in, in those experiences. There's, a, if, if I had not um, worked with those people, there would be massive blind spots uh, and you, you sim we simply wouldn't know. So one of the things that came out from that, several of the people, uh, had interviewed for housing that they were not eligible for while experiencing homelessness. So, um, I mean, you have to think about that. I, I, I accompanied someone to their interview, right? I drove them to their interview for housing. And, you know, everyone's just completely elated. They think their long three years of homelessness is finally over. You know, the, it's just the mood, it's joyful, it's hopeful. There's just smiles all around. And, um, and then they were ghosted. There was no, nobody ever phoned to say you didn't get the housing. There was no follow-up whatsoever. So it's just completely, um, the, the, the holes in the system are too big and there's um the system is inadvertently causing harm to people mm -hmm. and so if you think about chronic homelessness long-term homelessness um sometimes the media might talk about uh street entrenched people i don't think that's a great term but you know, how, how is our system working in, a, in an efficient, effective way to resolve this? And to an individual who has, um, you know, uh, started off in the foster care system uh, and been excluded from housing for a long time, you know, if you, if you make that kind of mistake, you're, the amount of anger uh, then the system has to think about how, how in the future are we going to resolve this anger? How in the future are we going to resolve this mistrust? And it just makes it so much harder to help someone exit homelessness in the future. So uh, I found um, that that was pretty common. There was, uh, yeah, there were several people that um, interviewed for housing that they were not eligible for. 
and um, and new people had numerous applications. Uh, so the whole the whole process of trying to access housing was very confusing. Uh, and it's confusing for everyone, uh, you know, let alone someone who's sleeping in a tent. So it it sounds like some of these gaps and barriers are quite stark. And so I'm I'm curious about some of your findings, uh, having followed the experience of some of these folks. What are the things that stood out to you as being major barriers or significant obstacles to to folks to to exit homelessness? Well, uh, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but the first thing that we are going to have to grapple with, the senior governments are going to have to figure out sooner or later, is they're going to have to resolve the housing crisis that is experienced by people who are on social assistance or seniors fixed income. So there's over 10,000 households in the capital region earning less than $23,000 per year. Renters, renter, all renter households who are spending more than half of their income on rent. So the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness uh, calls uh, these folks at risk of homelessness. They're at risk of being homeless. And they differentiate between uh, at risk of homelessness as kind of the socioeconomic condition and in imminent risk of homelessness. And the difference is an event or a crisis. So it could be a breakup uh, or it could be an eviction because of redevelopment of low cost housing. So if you think about it, you've got a person on disability assistance and the majority of people uh, six out of seven people that I interviewed relied on disability pension for their income. So today in today's rental market, if you have an event like an eviction or a breakup or a job loss that causes you to leave your apartment, you might be living in an apartment that's had BC's form of rent control where because you haven't moved in 20 years, you're paying $750 a month rent which is more than 50% of your income if you're on disability pension, but you're not homeless, right? So now you've got an event or and a crisis where you have to move. You cannot re-enter the rental market in Victoria. If your income's disability pension and you want to find a studio apartment, median available rents in Victoria for a studio apartment is 93% of disability income assistance right now. And the median available rent for a one bedroom apartment is 117% of, dis of disability income assistance. Wow. So wow. it's more, it's like, it's impossible math. There's no way. So if you have, so up those 10,000 households, they're okay right now. They're, they're living in apartments, they're squeaking by, but if anything tips that balance, and I, um, you know, redevelopments uh, are something that tip that balance, uh, it's not possible on their income to enter the rental market. So, senior governments are 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 not um, producing housing for this income group uh, to the level that's needed. So, uh, the BC has a new housing strategy. You know, I should say 
they're building housing for this income bracket for the first time in decades. <laughs> so let's get that on the table first. Mm -hmm. So for the first time in a generation, uh, the BC government is building housing for this income group. Uh, but in the CRD, uh, BC housing uh, anticipates 193 units will be built for this income group under their community housing fund. So that's against a need of 10,000 households. So it's the first and foremost, they have to resolve the housing crisis. And, um, and specifically, there needs to be a plan for this income group. This income group, private for-profit housing will never trickle down to this income group. Uh, so it really has to be government subsidized housing. The other, the finding related to this, I mean, the main thing, you know, people, um, you know, I want people to wrap their heads around is there's a bunch of people who are experiencing homelessness only for financial reasons. So if there was housing available, they could resolve their own homelessness without entering this system. And by, by continuing to ignore this uh, section of the population, we're institutionalizing homelessness. And that's pretty sad. <laughs> you know, we're institutionalizing a new, you know, profession, a new sector. And I don't think anybody wants that. Um, I think everybody wants to see that this sector shrink. And uh, that's certainly what I want to see. Well, and it clearly doesn't have to be this way. It's not a natural outcome of our function as a society. These are economic consequences of inequity and that, that are exacerbated, particularly in times of crises, but have been ongoing over the course of several decades. So it, it seems like there are available mechanisms for government in order to, to reverse this trend and, and to create the kind of economic interventions that would prevent this from continuing to occur. Yeah. And of course, um, you know, the, our current approach, which is haphazard and reactive and relies on a lot of emergency services, uh, is very expensive. And providing people with permanent housing immediately uh, saves, uh, one, you know, saves, uh, $2 for every $1 that's spent. It's much more cost effective than having emergency services respond on a daily basis. Why do you think that that's been such a major blind spot? I mean, we, we've seen data that supports that for years and yet mm -hmm. it, we continue to exist in this reality in which you know oh we throw up our hands it's just too expensive we can't possibly afford to to create the kinds of support and housing that are necessary yeah well i mean one of the findings of the report um is that uh we're not implementing the evident evidence-based model of housing first so as the study called At Home Chez Soi, it's the largest uh, field trial of a housing first intervention in the world. And it happened in Canada. And it happened with over 2000 participants across five different sites. What the intervention was, 
was providing people with severe mental illness and long histories of homelessness with permanent housing with intensive supports, either intensive case management, you know, which is, you know, a team of people uh, working with the individual or um, ACT teams, assertive community treatment teams, which are even more intensive supports. And what that study found was that the majority of people achieved housing stability and the majority of people uh, reported a positive life trajectory. So what we have, we don't have that. We have, we have, there's a small example of that uh, in Victoria. There's actually, there's a good program called Streets to Homes and they're doing something that is as close to that uh, model, um, uh, as close to that intervention. But that's, they serve 125 people. The vast majority of, of uh, approach that we have in Victoria is low barrier housing or low barrier shelters, uh, which really means, you know, any, anyone's welcome here. And uh, all of the um, principles of Housing First are missing. So Housing First has, um, uh, people get choice. People often get a choice in what neighborhood uh, they can live in. And this, this is a really important thing. Uh, if we want an effective system, if people are, are in the neighborhood uh, or the type of housing that they want to reside in, the chance of them returning to homelessness are much lower, <laughs> right? Um, so choice is one of the things we're not offering. We're not offering uh, community integration. That's another core princip foundational principle of housing first. Um, if we are, it's very scarce very scarce resources available. And most importantly, for, for those who need it, we're not offering intensive supports. So what I heard over and over again from the in interview interviewees is supportive housing works for some, but not all. And you know, one of the really sad things that I learned was some some people said, it's counterintuitive, but some people get into supportive housing and they're worse off. They decompensate. So I thought well, that sounds, <laughs> that doesn't sound very good. But some of the individuals that I uh, worked with for this report, I met them in an encampment and followed them on their transition into the hotel. And I could see this happening. People, some of the people, some of the people, by the way, were, did great. You know, they moved into a transitional hotel and they were happy as can be and they were on their way and their experience with homelessness was is over and we don't have to worry about them. Uh, but other people uh, really did uh, get worse off after being put in the hotel. They talked about isolation. They talked about loneliness. They talked about boredom. And what was uh, really eye-opening was to see that when they were asking for help, they were not getting any help. So um, one of the recommendations is that um, people have uh, access to case management. Case management, you know, the, in Victoria, people use the term wraparound supports quite a bit. I would suggest we just don't use that term anymore because it doesn't have a lot of technical meaning. 
and I couldn't find evidence of it in the transitional hotels. Uh, so what is in the transitional hotels are is uh, on-site primary health care, um, you know, safe supply, uh, security, uh, building staff, uh, meal services, uh, harm reduction services. Uh, but if you are an individual with long-term homelessness with untreated trauma and you don't trust anyone, uh, the chances of you accessing any of those services is, you know, could be pretty low. So case management is quite different because it means that there is a case manager who's helping you put your team together. And you are, as the individual, are at the center of that and you say, these are my housing goals, these are my employment goals, these are my health and well-being goals can you help me achieve these goals? And then the team puts together the right kind of, you know, personnel to help you achieve those goals. That's with, that's a miss for uh, the higher needs folks um, in the homeless serving system. The other miss is at the other end of the, at the other end of the spectrum. So, um, there are people living in these resource intensive supportive housing hotels who don't need any of the services that are offered. So the second um, big call to action that came out of the report, the first one was resolve the housing crisis, which we've talked about a bit. And the second one was a, is a full scale transformation of the homeless serving system. And this is in particular for those folks who who are not in need of those supports, who for financial reasons require housing, but don't require many of those health supports that you were describing. Yeah, the, the system needs to transform in many, many ways, uh, but definitely matching individuals more closely with their needs is one of the main goals to try to achieve more success for everyone. So this is, uh, I read a little bit about what you were describing here, where the system would be geared rather than thinking of it as a, you know, a group of people that need to go through this system or require supports. It's targeting individuals, working with them on a case-by-case -case basis to develop a plan. Yes. Yeah, exactly. You know, and any, any, uh, any plan that is, um, you know, where, where people are hoping to make lifestyle changes or improve their well-being, obviously it requires their willing participation, right? So that's why it's really important um, to engage with people as equal partners and active participants in their own well-being. There needs to be infrastructure for this homeless serving system that we have essentially institutionalized. And it, it felt to me to be kind of big and clunky, uh, you know, the way that it has developed over the years. And one of the best practices from other parts of Canada, and one of the requirements I should say of the federal government funding is that we have something called the real-time person-specific information management system a shared database across all of the shelters, all of the supportive housing sites, 
all of the rent supplements, any, any kind of homeless program that exists, there's a, a shared database. And of course, the principles of this, uh, how the information is collected and used, uh, has to be, you know, under provincial privacy legislation and protection of personal information, of course. The, the principle would be collect the minimum amount of information necessary to get the job done. But we have had trouble uh, implementing this regionally. We started a process in 2017. Uh, the CRD and the Greater Victoria Coalition and Homelessness started a process to implement this and uh, it didn't launch. Uh, it was expected to launch in 2018. So this, uh, there's work and effort um, going towards this once again. And it, it, there's basically no pathway to ending homelessness without this database. So this would tell us how many people are experiencing homelessness right now so right, one thing people should know is nobody knows. BC Housing has uh, applications. They have supportive housing applications. They know how many people have supportive housing applications, but they are very clear in saying, this is not a list of how many people are experiencing homelessness in the region right now for all sorts of reasons. May, one, because it's not a real time database. People move away from the region. They don't know if, if people get housing who have filled out an application. They don't know if people have filled out an application by mistake. So there's no nobody uh, in the region right now can say, oh, there's uh, 100 youth are experiencing homelessness in Victoria. Well, other regions, especially in Alberta and Ontario, have done a really good job of putting together this list. And it's critical. It's critical for being able to articulate to senior governments. These are the resources we need. I mentioned the federal government, their funding program, which provides, uh, I think, well, millions of dollars to the CRD uh, uh, for this program. The goal of that program, which is called Reaching Home, is to reduce chronic homelessness by 50%. Well, we don't have a database of people experiencing chronic homelessness. So we have no idea if our interventions are reducing chronic homelessness. So uh, one of the big recommendations is that the Greater Victoria Coalition and Homelessness take on this database and that it be uh, community owned and that the data be owned by the community and not by a government agency and, uh, and that they report publicly every month the number of people entering homelessness, the number of people exiting homelessness, the length of time that people are experiencing homelessness so we can see if that's going down or up and returns to homelessness. So this is um, where I have mixed feelings because even as I make this recommendation, I'm institutionalizing homelessness even more, but we, we have such a mass homelessness problem in Victoria with the numbers not going down over a 10 year period. We, we have to do this. We have to start working differently and more efficiently. So your report was finalized and sent to council, Victoria council last week. What was the response from council? 
No, it was a, it was really great response. Lots of energy, uh, lots of questions, like a couple of hours of questions, I would say. Uh, my presentation was 45 minutes because there's so much content. And at the end of the day, council end endorsed all of the recommendations uh, and a large chunk are aimed at the BC government because the BC government is drafting a homelessness strategy right now. Uh, so this uh, report will be very useful to Victoria City Council, who's in regular conversation with uh, provincial counterparts about homelessness uh, to help influence uh, that homelessness strategy. I, I think reports about homelessness in the capital region are, they occupy a lot of shelf space. They, they come along pretty regularly. And I wondered from your perspective, what ensures this one doesn't suffer the same fate, that it doesn't end up collecting dust, but that it actually will result in some meaningful action. And it sounds like it, it's a bit um, fortuitous, the timing, if you can describe the situation in any way as fortuitous, uh, that the province would be drafting its strategy while you've just tabled this report and have had it endorsed by council. What do you feel is the likelihood that this is going to carry some momentum and, and result in some meaningful change? I really hope, even though it is a 102-page report, I really hope the public will tuck into it because there is so much um, discussion and narrative about home about homelessness, and uh, you know a lot of it is is, is not coming from a lot deep knowledge about homelessness it's it's coming from uh individuals perspectives and and values and i think everyone regardless of you know what they think should be done today would find it eye-opening to learn how the system actually works and so uh i'm hopeful that uh if people tuck into it, it'll make the conversation a little bit uh, more informed locally. Uh, the big opportunity that you mentioned is in influencing the provincial government's homelessness strategy. The mayor of Victoria is also the co-chair of the Greater Victoria Coalition to End Homelessness. And, um, you know, I don't want to speak for her. You get to interview, interview her about it, but uh, the report will be useful to the coalition uh, and how they shape their strategic priorities going forward. Politicians are afraid to uh, commit to end homelessness, you know, under, understandable. Um, and there's a lot of uh, cynicism about whether or not we can end homelessness. And homelessness is definitely a solvable problem. You know, there, there really isn't, um, uh, you know, you can't even say that money is a barrier since uh, ending homelessness saves the taxpayers, you know, 50 cents on every dollar compared to reacting to homelessness. So it's, it's not rocket science. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of talk in our community about complex care right now which is probably appropriate for a very small number of people, a very small percentage of people that are experiencing homelessness. You know, but we have to keep in mind that the model of housing first has been proven not just in that first seminal study, uh, but over and over again. So the way to solve homelessness is to 
give people a permanent home. It's not to give people shelter. It's not to give people a transitional home. It's not to put people through a program to prepare them to be a renter. It's to, you know, literally, if, if you could just drive up to a person who's homeless and say, do you want a home today? And if they say yes, say, okay. And by the end of the day, give them the keys to that apartment. That's how you solve homelessness. So I think, uh, I hope people feel hopeful that homelessness is a solvable problem. Uh, it definitely is in my point of view. It's, it's, it's something we shouldn't accept. We shouldn't allow to be normalized. Um, we don't need to create a new homeless institution in Canada. Um, we need to bring this era of mass homelessness to an end. Nicole Chelan is the author of a report that has just been received by Victoria Council with 28 recommendations and uh, four major calls to action. Certainly a comprehensive report. Nicole, thank you so much for your energy and effort uh, and, and your thoughtfulness on this significant issue and taking the time to chat with us today to share, I think, just a snippet of, uh, of all of the work that has gone into producing this report uh, and and your reflections on on where things may go from here it's so appreciated thanks for having me dean i really appreciate it this has been another episode of amazing places i'm dean murdoch thanks for listening <laughs>